Hello, my name is Sadie Drinkwood Herman, and I am here with my colleagues Aidan Donovan and Madison Peak. Welcome to our podcast, Europe in the World, where we explore issues related to development, humanitarianism, and crisis management within the EU. This podcast is under the direction of Dr. Kaya Shilda, Associate Professor of International Relations at BU's Party School of Global Studies, and Jean Monnet Chair in European Security and Defense from 2022 to 2024. This episode is with special guest, Dr. Christian Friedrichsonen, whose research focuses on the democratic erosion and the rise of anti-system populism. We hope you enjoy our discussion with Christian as we dive deeper into the topic of populism within the EU. So for our first question, um, in preparation for this interview, we saw you discussed and proposed design principles for an emergency European constitution. Could you explain why you believe the EU needs an emergency constitution and what its significance would be in responding to humanitarian crises? Sure. So I think as it stands, um, in the European Union, we do uh, lack authority, formal authority, and also clear-cut procedures for swift crisis responses. And so I think what uh, the past uh, 10, 15 years or so have have shown us in terms of uh, crisis management uh, is that uh, either one of two things uh, tend to happen. Either crisis responses are insufficient, right? It's just not happening enough because, because authority is, is lacking or competence or capacity are lacking. I think we saw that in the migration crisis or uh, also in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Or what we can also see is uh, that you know when there is a strong and assertive response by the European Union, the commission, by the central bank, or uh, whatever agency in charge, it has to happen in kind of legal gray zones, right? The institutions have to overstep their mandates sometimes. They have to, um, uh, 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 yeah, uh, basically exercise something that I call unregulated emergency uh, politics. And that has very strongly negative consequences for the legitimacy of the European Union. And so that's uh, that's why I think, you know, an, an emergency constitution, like the uh, legal framework within uh, the European treaties world, something to be created, um, could really solve both of these problems at the same time by, on the one hand, constituting emergency authority for uh, the European Union, and on the other hand, also very strongly tying it back to legal procedures, accountability, uh, democratic procedures, etc. So that's, that's why I think in general, uh, emergency constitution for the EU might be a good idea. That's super interesting. So our next question for you is, with your work at the Center for European Studies at Harvard University, what effects are we seeing on the EU with the rise of anti-system populism? And can you give an example of how the EU has dealt with populist leaders who have gone against EU policy and identity? And if you don't mind, if just elaborating on your research on this topic, we'd really appreciate that. Yes, sure. So, I mean, the the effects of populism and the rise of uh, anti-system populism, as you call it, uh, on the EU, obviously, is super diverse, right? There's uh, a lot of different different effects that we could see and dimensions that we could. Uh, talk about. I think overall, it's clear that it makes governing in the EU just much harder. Right? That's one thing I think we can all agree on. On the one hand, because um, opposition to the EU is rising across EU member states. Right? That's something that, hap- that happens in basically all 
uh, EU member states at the same time. And thus current governments face uh, the fear of electoral punishment if they you know, take overly pro-EU stances. So that really uh, undermines the support for, uh, for the EU, for European initiatives, so further EU authority transfers. Um, and then secondly, we have the problem that more and more populists are in power across the EU, right? We, um, we see it in Poland, we see it most clearly in Hungary, now very, very strongly in Italy. Uh, to some extent, even in Sweden. And um, of course, this makes it much uh, harder to find compromise in across all activities concerning the distribution of funds and the question of the allocation of, of values, where to go, what to do. Uh, also, that maybe that, that speaks a little bit also to the question of um, humanitarian uh, crises and crisis management, a question of whether or not it's a good idea to help others at all, right? This might have been common sense before, but now it is one thing that is always uh, uh, put into question more and more. I mean, to give you uh, uh, the second part of the question, to give you uh, an example, a great example of how we use dealing with uh, populist leaders, I think um, we have to talk about Hungary, right? That's the uh, most, um, the, the, probably the strongest. Uh, example, a clearest example of a uh, populist leader, Viktor Orban, um, who is really going anti-EU, anti-system in a sense, uh, especially with regards to the persistent violation of the rule of law standards uh, of the European uh, Union. And now the question is, how does the EU deal with uh, such, a, such a leader? And um, I guess the procedurally, it's clear that the European Commission together with uh, the European Court of Justice, would normally have actually at its disposal means to kind of enforce the European rules. It's also in a member state like Hungary, especially with, uh, you know, using the threat or also enforcing uh, uh, measures that would cut funding to uh, to that country. And so for quite a long time, this hasn't happened. And uh, there's been a lot of criticism out there also against the commission against the court why uh they would be so lenient and just let it happen and let it slide but obviously i think uh, one thing that, that uh, comes across here which is important is that the the commission or the european union in general is really um yeah walking a fine line here um because the stronger the the eu imposes its will on a member state that is already you know uh, in tendency critical of the European Union, the more also it allows a leader, a populist leader like Viktor Orban to point at this um, evil international institution that from Brussels tries to govern and rein in on the domestic, what they perceive as domestic politics of, of Hungary, right? And so actually, in this sense, uh, it has been shown in, in research that to some extent, strong involvement by the Commission in Hungary has only reinforced support for populist leader Orban against the European Union. So, uh, a somewhat of a vicious cycle here that uh, has to be uh, taken into account. And obviously, there's also the threat um, of uh, Hungary uh, choosing different allies, so to say, right? They were uh, like, well, if we can't get along with this in the EU or with, uh, with Brussels, then you know, we get the money from China or from Russia. Uh, and that obviously is a very strong threat that uh, has to be taken into consideration as well. 
I mean, now after several years, the Commission has made the, the disbursement of the COVID recovery uh, funds to Hungary conditional on uh, them actually complying with uh, some uh, uh, reform demands um, regarding the judicial system. And I think that might become a, an, effective, an effective tool eventually. And so maybe just one last word on uh, my research in, in this area, because you asked for that specifically. Um, so what, what I'm currently uh, interested in is um, kind of the, the feedback loops between European crisis management and what I've described initially a little bit at this, this gray zone type of unconstitutional, unregulated uh, crisis management or emergency politics. And the interrelation with this or the, the dynamic interplay with uh, domestic mobilization against the European Union, right? So that we have, I, I indicated already this kind of vicious cycle uh, uh, argument. And I think that is one that I'm very much interested in at the moment, seeing like the, the dynamic interplay of factors, um, you know, creating more and more pressures on uh, the EU not to delegate authority, not to, to have too strong off the union, which on the other hand, makes decision makers at the EU level often resort to um, to procedural, maybe undemocratic backdoors in order to get things done that they need to, that they think they need to get done, especially in times of crisis. But that, of course, plays only into the hands of populists who always claim that you know what's happening in the EU is just undemocratic. The leads doing what they think needs to be done against the will of the people. And so there, I think we have stuff that's reinforcing each other, and it's really uh, problematic in them. So then as a follow up to that, how do you see the EU's role in crisis management and how do you expect it to evolve over time, possibly over the next decade or so? Um, I think in terms of crisis management, we probably need to distinguish between uh, internal crises of the European Union. Um, I think that mostly of the stuff that I have mentioned uh, for like uh, you know the, the euro crisis, uh, the Schengen crisis. Now, COVID obviously is much bigger, but for the EU, it was also uh, a crisis to be tackled internally and external uh, crisis, humanitarian crises where the EU would go to uh, conflict, security crisis, etc. Outside the, the boundaries. And for the former, the internal crisis, I I was thinking earlier that there might have been or might be to some extent, an opening after the COVID experience, uh, after you know, a long decade of, of crisis that culminated in this, this uh, moment in the early phase of the COVID pandemic, uh, where really it seemed like nothing was, was working in the EU as it was supposed to. Uh, that strong beggar, thy neighbor politics, uh, and we had these export restrictions on uh, on medical supplies, and uh, we thought, okay, now we have a next um, uh, economic fiscal crisis that is that is coming our way. And only it was uh, kind of surprising, I think, for for many that after a year, um, you know, coming up with the next generation EU and the COVID recovery fund, uh, it had been possible to agree on a huge package that solved some of those uh, those issues. And I thought. Uh, the, now that it was time for the Commission and other European actors to push an agenda towards more uh, a crisis capacities and more formalization in this area. 
And I think they were on a somewhat good path, but then Ukraine happened or Russia happened to Ukraine, let's say. Um, and so there, I think this, this brings us to the external crisis uh, as I mentioned a bit uh, more, where I thought potentially there might be some more uh, room for cohesion among the European uh, Union member states, uh, given the newly faced external threat, right? It's a very typical rally around the flag effect uh, or block building effect, if you will, if you, if you can point to a clear, uh, clearly identifiable outside threat. Um, cohesion might might grow in this uh, in this area at least, but still this will uh, depend, I think, long term very much also on the question of how those uh, those populist leaders that we talked about uh, will will side here, right? Because as it stands, uh, except for Hungary, I think we have a pretty clear front, uh, for example, against uh, against Russia at the moment. Um, but uh, to what extent such a front would hold? Uh, hold tight uh, also with regard to China uh, is, I think, another uh, another question, right? So um, that I think there it, it uh, might be broken up this this alliance, if you will, by uh, populist governments, both from left and uh, of course from right. In other matters, especially humanitarian, um, I think it's rather likely, unfortunately, that we would see more of a retreat of the European Union than. And an expansion in uh, in other areas, um, simply because internal affairs, the, the internal mess that the EU is facing, is consuming so much energy and attention. And uh, I think the security dimension of uh, external policy is um, is so important at the moment. So that's that's I think generally it's it's going to look in the near future. Thank you. Um, so going back to populism just for a second, um, how about the specific movements of like Brexit and the UK and its economy? Do you think that the rise in anti-system politics is a trend that you expect to continue in the coming years or not? Why? Yeah, somewhat of a million dollar question, right? Um, <laughs> fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I think, um, it is not so easy to give an answer to this um, uh, across member states because I think a lot depends on the domestic context here, right? It's not a uniform uniform pattern that we see across European member states or the world uh, uh, for that matter. So um, we will have to factor in all the, the domestic uh, specificities and also I think take into account that in some states we, we get more of a appealing thing. Now we, we've already um, crossed the Rubicon, so to say, of, uh, of populist mobilization, and we're going back to something more what seemed to be normal before, and then in others it's going up, and so it's, it's not all in line uh, temporarily. Um, but, but since you mentioned Brexit and that uh, kind of negative experience um, that, that came with it, I think that's an interesting and important thing to look at, because um, it's true that I think Brexit um, initially uh, sought to set a good example for other nationalist populists, and then eventually turned out to become a negative example for, for them, to set a negative example for them. And the interesting thing, I, I guess, is now that um, the populists in power or aspiring to power in, uh, in the European Union do not propose exits anymore. 
right? So it is it is true that it, as your question implied that there are such negative economic uh, consequences from you know pursuing such a policy. But now the new idea of these uh, anti-system populists is um, to remain inside the European Union, to learn from the mistake, and uh, just to seek a complete transformation of the EU into um, you know something like a, a free trade association of fully sovereign nation states. Um, that in in that idea would keep the welfare benefits of you know basically having a uh, a, uh, a an internal market with free trade uh, rules, but none of the uh, the aspects that touch upon identity politics in a wider in a wider sense. So uh, that I think is is something that, that is pretty strong as an as an argument or an idea on the side of the of the populace, um, which makes it um, likelier in my view that this trend, if you will, or at least the the ups and downs in in an upward direction. Uh, overall, are likely uh, to continue in the foreseeable future. All right, cool. And uh, to wrap up, we'll lead into uh, that area with uh, the the role of the EU as a democracy. Um, so there is a theory that the EU is facing a democratic deficit. Do you think this is true? And if so, what do you think contributes to that deficit? Um, I think there is. Um, Yes, I think there, there's uh, a lot to be said about an existing uh, democratic deficit in the European Union. I'd like to start though by saying that, um, at least on the surface, and also in, in uh, many profound ways, the European Union obviously is the most democratic international organization that we have, right? Uh, it, uh, it is so advanced in terms of uh, constitutionalization, in terms of uh, the powers of the European Parliament having a power in the first place. Uh, uh, with regard to transparency rules, checks of balances, and, and all these kinds of things. So there is lots to be said about uh, taking this this question seriously and not just, uh, you know, claiming the EU is just an undemocratic beast and uh, Brussels is bad. Uh, that's uh, also not, I think, what is implied with the theory of, of democratic. Yeah. There, I guess, um, there is a couple of things that we can point to um, that have uh, this this problematic, or or uh, reinforce this, this problematic aspect of the EU. Um, to to begin with, the European Union is not only maybe the most democratic of international organizations, but it's also uh, the one that has the most political authority, right? And so maybe it's uh, it's unsurprising that also the concomitant uh, democratic procedures need to uh, conform to much higher standards than for other IOs that simply do regulatory business, right? And so um, the the demand is um, is much higher for uh, democratic procedures than in others. The, the problems that I see are probably threefold at the at the moment, just very generally speaking. Um, there is indeed uh, the, the the key problem that uh, the European treaties constitutionalize, if you will, a huge amount of uh, of normative political aspects, such as uh, what kind of economic order uh, we live in, what kind of economic rules um, we abide by. And these economic rules, which are mostly market liberal slash neoliberal in character, 
are not open to public debate anymore, right? Because they're enshrined in European treaties. And these treaties are basically our constitution. And so if you if you put things like these into these founding documents that are extremely hard to, to revise and reverse, um, you take something out of public contestation, which in every other political system, we would all argue that belongs inside uh, the realm of political contestation, right? And so taking something out of public contestation is pretty undemocratic, actually. Um, so th that is that is one, one point. Um, another one, I think, is that um, still, and that's that's old arguments uh, are going back to, to debates about uh, the European uh, constitution between Peter Grimm and uh, Habermas, for example, whether uh, Europe is ready uh, to be democratized in a, in a way, right? Um, do we have uh, enough of the European public sphere? Do we have a European demos that would be actually necessary in order to aggregate um, to aggregate the citizen preferences at, at the European level and allow for all these decisions that are uh, a supranational authority from from Brussels to uh, to be bound back to uh, uh, voters uh, voters will uh, and that I think is still a problem because um, in that sense the Parliament is also not really tied back to uh, to voters. And then my final point, um, the one that I've been working on most, and maybe that's come across in this uh, in this talk already, is that um, you know, if on, in a, our everyday business um, in the EU uh, things are going okay, and we have all these rules, and we have uh, a kind of democratic procedures, it is in times of crisis that I think we kind of often see problems emerge, either through the an exercise of authority that is unruly, undue, that is a bit dodgy, that happens behind the scenes, behind closed doors, in secrecy, um, that is new transfers of authority, that is the way that actors are being empowered in times of crisis, which um, often I would I would argue are really fully un undemocratic. They might be necessary, in a sense, to solve an immediate problem of interdependence in order to, you know, have the European Central Bank, for example, uh, a step in and step up during the euro crisis and uh, and do things that really eventually helped solve this problem but it was a mode of empowerment that was just purely undemocratic right because it was just reinterpreting rules by stealth um and uh you know not tying this back uh in, in any way to voter accountability so uh, these these are problems uh, i think which uh, which are bigger than uh and, and also more eminent uh, with uh, the uh, with voter bases in the European Union because they're so visible, right? Uh, and that creates another kind of problem than the structural issues that we were talking about before. All right. Um, yeah, that concludes all of our questions. Uh, thank you for your time and for uh, taking the time to share your knowledge of the EU. We really appreciate it. And yeah, it was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Sure.